Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. For much of the 20th century, Europe was haunted by a threat of its own imagining, Judeo-Bolshevism. This myth, that communism was a Jewish plot to destroy the nations of Europe, was a paranoid fantasy and yet fears of a Jewish-Bolshevik conspiracy took hold during the Russian Revolution and spread across Europe. During World War II, these fears sparked genocide. My guest, Paul Hainbrink, examines the history of the Judeo-Bolshevik myth as a potent political weapon and its transformation after the Holocaust to fit within Cold War anti-communism and the continued revival of Judeo-Bolshevik concepts in today's anti-Semitism. Paul Hainbrink is an associate professor of history at Rutgers University, specializing in modern East Central Europe, with a particular focus on Hungary, nationalism, and anti-Semitism as modern political ideologies, and the place of religion in the modern nation-state. He's the author of In Defense of Christian Hungary, and his most recent book is A Specter-Haunting Europe, The Myth of Judeo-Bolshevism, published by Harvard University Press. I've provided a partial transcript of this interview. I'll put a link in the show notes and on the podcast website. Here's Paul Hainbrink. You have this really interesting book, and when I saw it listed, um, it was definitely something that I wanted to talk to you about because... um, I, I don't know if you can maybe comment on this, that if it's one of the first historical investigations in the history of this concept of Judeo-Bolshevism, but the book is called A Specter Haunting Europe, The Myth of Judeo-Bolshevism. So I thought we'd just start by having you talk about what inspired you to write this study. Well, I, I think you you put your finger on it. Um, there there was not such a book that, that satisfied me. I, I mean, I came to this project really... Um, you know, already in the sort of late 1990s, I was in Hungary uh, at the time doing work on my dissertation, uh, which was about uh, the concept in Hungarian politics of Christian nationalism, which Viktor Orban has brought back most recently. Um, And it was looking at the relationship between nationalism and Christianity and anti-Semitism in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. And I saw uh, a couple of things that, that, and the the linkage between them really intrigued me. On the one hand, I was seeing in all of my sources that I was looking at from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s a real preoccupation with the role that uh, Jews had played in the very short uh, but very cataclysmic Bolshevik revolution that Hungary experienced in 1919. Uh, And there was a lot of discussion afterwards, both in the immediate aftermath and in the decades following, about how that could have been. Um, how, how Jews got this kind of power? What uh, you know? Uh, what, what, what kind of legacy that episode of what was perceived by almost everybody on the national spectrum as a, as, a, as an episode of Jewish power? What that meant for Hungarian history? Um, and uh, then you know this kept coming back, and so there was sort of a layer in which you know people in the 1940s referred to the you know the debates of the 1920s, and so and so that was one set of issues. Um, the second was that as I was doing my work in the archive and trying to come up with a workable dissertation, I was also paying attention to um, you know, public conversations that were going on in Hungary at the time. And uh, this was after 1989, and, and, and there was a lot of discussion in the press, in among historians, but also in the wider public, about the role um, that... 
Jews had played in the communist regime after 1945, um, and the degree to which this fact ought to be relevant or whether it should be relevant to debates about, for example, the history of the Holocaust in Hungary, um, and more generally what you know that meant for a kind of reappraisal of um, a history of, of Hungary from a post-communist perspective. So there was a lot of grappling with, with whether that fact was a relevant fact and you know people on the nationalist right said it absolutely was and they wanted to make kinds of comparisons with, um, with, with the Holocaust in various ways and people on the left were pushing back. So I was very interested in that debate and it it struck me that you know there wasn't a book that really dealt with the fact that this was a recurring issue from you know one historical context to the next historical context across the 20th century and and that you know by the time you get to 1989 there's there's both empirical work tied up with sort of memory work um, and I wanted to to see if I could unpack that and I knew that this was not just a Hungarian story and that the book wouldn't just be a book about Hungary, but that was my way into it. Um, and it was very much from a perspective of, of, of being there. At- so what is the, what is Judeo-Bolshevism? Um, Judeo-Bolshevism, the way I see it, is, is it's, it's one variation on uh, the kind of age-old notion of a Jewish, global Jewish conspiracy, the idea that there is a conspiracy among Jews internationally to get some kind of global or world power. And Judeo-Bolshevism is the variation that says that uh, Bolshevism or communism was created by Jews as a collective. It's not about this person was Jewish or that person was Jewish. It's about the collectivity of Jews. Um, Creating uh, communism as a tool or as an instrument to achieve that kind of world power. Uh, Communist parties, communist movements, communist ideology were, you know, tools and instruments of Jewish power, according to this myth, uh, and that therefore um, the crimes that communist regimes committed um, are uh, the fault of the Jews, and that the Jews, in fact, are to blame for them. So how does, I mean, it, it, that's one of the things you point out that's really fascinating is, well, I guess the, fir- the first question I have is, of all of the different ethnic groups in you know, Central Eastern Europe, even Western Europe, why is it the Jews that take on this, you know, image of the as the leaders or organizers of this vast conspiracy? Yeah, I mean, I think that has to do with the ways in which certain kinds of anti-Semitic tropes that have a very old history and that you know predate the 20th century by by many centuries, um, you know, get repurposed and 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 reinvested with a new kind of significance in the 20th century. I mean, you know, if you if you look at the history of communist parties in various places, there are always there's always concerns that you know one particular ethnic group or another is maybe exercising more power, more influence at a particular moment. You can find those kinds of debates, you know, about you know the role of ethnic Hungarians in the Romanian Communist Party, etc. You know, but um, the 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 issue with with you know Jews really gets at some of these older tropes about Jewish power, which you can you know trace back to the Middle Ages. Jewish power as being a kind of um, illegitimate power used to illegitimate ends. That you know the the, the that that you know the idea of Jews in power conjures up a kind of uh, imagination of a dystopia. It's the world turned upside down. So when people you know talk about Jews in charge of communist parties, it really allows these fantasies of, you know, a kind of inverted world, a world in which, you know, order has become disorder, um, really can have free play in a way that, that you, you don't get when you, when, you, when you have other kinds of ethnic conflicts within communist parties in various places. I mean, is this what you mean when you write that basically the, the Jewish Bolshevik is a modern day version of the medieval fables about Jewish devils? Uh, it, it, that's exactly what I mean. Uh, you know, there there is this very old association of you know um, Jewish power with evil, um, with, with 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 you know with with upset with inversion, uh, with dystopia. And so when you see you know conservative or right wing or nationalist observers of of communism in counter revolutionary movements um, after nineteen seventeen and, and and many decades afterwards. 
uh, write about Jews and Bolshevism, you know, if you if you scratch it, not even just a you know a, a lot, if you just just at the surface, you can start to see that what they're really talking about is a kind of broader image of what they think society is or ought to be, and how the the idea of Jews in power in charge of communist parties is sort of the opposite of that, and that because Jews have exercised this kind of uh, illegitimate power civilization or order or society or what have you as they see it needs to be defended and so that kind of you know real complex of sort of set of ideas is I think what makes um, the Judeo-Bolshevik myth so powerful in so many places at so many times. How does the idea this is another kind of you know as one tries to wrap one's head around anti-Semitism, but how does the idea of the Jewish Bolshevik square with the other anti-Semitic trope of the Jewish capitalist, which seem to be two contradictory things, right? They are. And if you, if you, if you, if you analyze it in those terms, the contradictions, uh, you know, are, are, they're irreconcilable. Um, you know, that, that's kind of what, why I began by saying that it's, it's one variation of the sort of, you know, the, the, the larger trope or idea of a Jewish conspiracy. And so, you know, in, in, in many places, this particular notion goes together with other kinds of Jewish conspiracy fears. Um, the, the Judeo-capitalist one or the association of Jews with finance is the most obvious. And, you know, you can find that in Nazi ideology and in many other kinds of, of right-wing nationalist ideologies. So um, I'm not saying that, you know, it, it has priority or, or, or is, you know, or it, it can always be isolated because in, 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 in history at particular moments, they're always sort of bound up in each other. But I wanted to see what would happen if I wrote a book not about anti-Semitism as such, but about this particular myth and tried as best as I could, even if it's in certain cases, you know, as for example, with Nazi ideology, a little bit of a, uh, of an artifice, uh, what would happen if I focused just on it? Um, and, and see, see what, what came up, you know, are there certain kinds of ideas that the Judeo-Bolshevik myth, um, you know, uh, uh, links to more easily than other kinds of anti-Semitism? Um, uh, are there certain times when it comes out? Does it transform itself in certain ways that others don't? Um, that those are the kinds of questions that led me to sort of, you know, try to isolate it. Even though, as you point out quite rightly, in in, in actual anti-Semitic politics, it rarely is isolated. Yeah, and and I think too, if if I'm not mistaken, that one could make an argument that this strain of anti-Semitism, the Judeo-Bolshevik strain is really one of the most consequential vectors of anti-Semitism for the Holocaust, considering, you know, the amount of, I was reading about the Holocaust in the East recently, and the, the millions of leaflets that the, the Nazis dropped in uh, Ukraine, Belarus, and, and Western parts of, the Soviet, of Russia, uh, pointing to exactly the Judeo-Bolshevik uh, regime. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really crucial point. I mean, it's 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 pretty clear, you know, from for, to, to me from the work that I did that, you know, it's it's a it's a major factor in the in the escalation of um, killing into into uh, actually a kind of wave of genocide. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, to to a degree that you know sometimes is lost in 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 the sort of you know um, huge thicket of books about this or that local aspect of the Holocaust. I think what's sometimes lost is, is the idea that from the very beginning, uh, n n Hitler, Nazi Germany, war planners, the SS, understood the invasion of the Soviet Union in, in, in very different terms, and they saw it as, a, as, a, as an assault on a regime that they perceived to be a fusion of an ideological and a racial enemy. The Soviet Union was a, was a Judeo-Bolshevik system. That language comes through in all of the language um, that 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 um, you you find in in in, in planning and, and also in the, in what you might call Nazi-fied Soviet studies of the 1930s that really laid the kind of intellectual groundwork for it. And so you know, as German troops and forces move into the Soviet Union in the summer of 1941, there's this kind of assumption operating from the very first moments that um, Jews are associated with dangerous partisan activity uh, in some way. And it has nothing to do with, you know, is the particular, you know, group that we're looking at sort of, you know, 
arms bearing Jewish males of a certain age is that Jewish communities very quickly are seen as being associated in some way with uh, uh, you know a kind of a resistance that needs to be stamped out now that's not the only vector that leads to the Holocaust but I think it's a very powerful one and it's one that you can see you know before the invasion and at the very first moments of the invasion and, and, and building over the course of the summer and the fall of 1941 which historians of the Holocaust see as being the the real sort of crucial time window in which the Holocaust, as we understand it, emerges. I want to step back a bit because in this relationship between violence against Jews and the the ideology of of Judeo Bolshevism and the myths associated it, because you know you can even one can even look at say uh, you know pogroms beginning in Russia in 1881 in the wake of Alexander II's assassination also linked to the idea of the Jewish revolutionary, right? And then and then in the Russian Civil War, the Judeo-Bolshevik uh, myth also operates in terms of, you know, mass violence against Jews in that conflict as well. So this this history that the or at least the the idea that the Nazis innovate and I want to ask you to elaborate on that later, but take us back a bit uh, to the history, the beginnings of this ideology and how it functions in relationship to violence against Jews. Yeah, I think it's, it, it, I sort of see it functioning in two ways. And, and and you're quite right to say that this isn't only a Nazi story. That's, you know, maybe the most dramatic variation of it because of, you know, the importance that the Holocaust plays in our sort of moral imagination. But um, it was by no means the first one. Uh, you know, as you point out, the, the 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 Russian Civil War, all of the violence in the Ukraine that was directed against or inspired by the idea of Judeo-Bolshevism is absolutely crucial. And it's equally um, important in uh, the violence against Jews committed during the Polish-Soviet War of those years and in the um, the Hungarian White Terror. I mean, the, the number of people killed is, you know, not comparable in any way to the much larger number of people killed in, in, in the Russian Civil War in the Ukraine. But the the function of this idea is the same. And I see it as being sort of functioning on two levels. Um, one is that the association of Jews with a with a very particular ideology that at that moment is seen as being absolutely hostile and inimical to um, a variety of nationalist projects allows you know nationalist counter-revolutionaries of various sorts uh, to make a very easy assumption that all Jews must either be working with the Bolsheviks or sympathetic to them or somehow hostile to their own nation or nation state building project whether that's you know the Polish state or a Ukrainian state building project that ultimately failed in in, in the aftermath of, of the Russian Revolution or the idea of trying to restore a, a Hungarian state to sovereignty after the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire so it, it's it's on the one hand it's a targeting on the other hand it's it's um, it's uh, it's a way also to rationalize the violence um, and you can see this um, in the international debates about the Russian Civil War um, in the in the early 1920s, and you can also see it in a way in the in the you know Holocaust debates of our own time that you know violence against Jews is presented by um, nationalist figures as being perhaps regrettable, but certainly understandable because Jews they say. Um, were so clearly associated with an ideology that was hostile to um, their state-building project. It becomes a kind of rational, it's not irrational anymore, it's not a prejudice that's bubbled up from centuries ago. It's a, it's a very kind of clear, rational risk assessment that communism poses a kind of threat and that therefore, you know, and that Jews are associated with it and if the violence became a little bit excessive, that's unfortunate, but these things happen in times of civil war. Um, but there's a kind of political logic to it that can be used to excuse it, which is certainly very, was very um, convenient and comfortable for um, many Western diplomats to hear after, uh, in the aftermath of World War I because it allowed them to sort of say, okay, this, you know, we understand why this is happening. We can, we can carry on with our plans to contain communism without worrying too much about this. Um, and you can see it working also uh, today uh, in, in, in debates about uh, Holocaust memory where, you know, 
you find nationalist historians saying, well, okay, with the, the, you know, we understand the crimes committed uh, against Jews during the Holocaust, but we should also remember um, the, the role that Jews played in communism, and that makes the violence committed against Jews perhaps understandable in that context. You see this kind of rationalization uh, also at work there. So I think, you know, the myth of Judeo-Bolshevism and violence goes together in both ways. One is a kind of targeting and the other is a kind of rationalization logic. Yeah. Now, another thing that I, I found really fascinating, um, well, actually, I want to ask something else. First. So uh, the other thing that is is really interesting about this is that this myth of Judeo-Bolshevism is found throughout Europe and to, and also finds residence in places like the United States as well. How did it spread as an idea? You know, I think there are a number of vectors. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, sort of figured out very early on is that this wasn't a story of it being born in one place only and then spreading out to the rest of the world. I mean, you know, there are no people who very early on suggest to me, well, maybe this is something that comes out of the Russian Empire and just goes west. Right, out of um, the, like the protocols of the elders of Zion or something. Precisely. And that certainly is a very important vector and, and the role that, for example, white emigres play in um, Berlin and Munich in the early 1920s is, is very important, and they go elsewhere too. Um, Bucharest, they go to Paris, and they connect with right-wing figures there as well. So that is an important vector. Um, but, you know, I found, uh, you know, others as well. One of the biggest uh, in Western Europe is um, the very independent road that uh, figures in the Catholic Church came uh, to this idea. I mean, they certainly were very aware of what was going on in Russia, but they they weren't necessarily influenced by Russian thinking or Russian political ideology about this. They had their own concerns about, you know, culture wars against in which, you know, liberal states in the 19th century had been attacking the Catholic Church. And they saw communism and socialism as being a kind of continuation of that. And so there's a very kind of um, uh, uh, very specifically Catholic version of uh these ideas of Judeo Bolsheviks that, that that married very very well with the others, but that you know has its own uh, um, very specific origins, and so I, I see this as being a, a, a an idea or a myth that has multiple origins, and it's spread in in a, in a variety of ways. I mean, there there are a number of overlapping networks. Um, there are uh, you know emigres uh, who travel from you know the, from Russia after the Russian uh, civil after the Russian Revolution. There are um, journalists and writers who go um, you know to the places where the revolutions just happened and they try to get some kind of information. They they craft stories about how Jews were at the center of what had happened and their works are read and republished. There are a variety of studies that are translated, and these books circulate and are published in a variety of places simultaneously. Um, you know, within um, within Catholic networks, there is a, a very clear exchange of information across national lines that extends not only within Western Europe, but also you didn't mention this. It, it go, and this isn't in the book, but it's it, it's certainly very true to to places in South America like Argentina. This this idea is is very important as well, um, and. Um, you know, there are, there's also a kind of a general panic about um, uh, immigration and Jews as saboteurs that comes out of the war um, that is, you know, shared by uh, belligerents on both sides. Um, you know, you, 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 you see concerns in uh, London's East End or the Lower East Side. I mean, that the Jews in those places are going to undermine the war effort on, you know, in, in Britain or, or, or the U.S. just as much as, as you know, um, uh, like... The, the Austro-Hungarian um, governments in, in Vienna and, and Budapest are, are concerned about the impact of Jewish refugees there. And you certainly also see it in Jewish immigration to the United States in in the nineteen twenty early nineteen twenties as part of the Red Scare as well. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there there is this very real sense that um, Jewish migrants um, are potentially dangerous, um, and they're seen as being dangerous right after World War One, both in places which had, in, in countries which had lost the war as well as in those which had won it. Now, one of the things that I, I found incredibly fascinating is that you know that Judeo-Bolshevism easily fit within a general clash of civilizations where Russia 
and the East were Europe's other. So it actually kind of melds together with a certain, you know, existing Russophobia to some extent. Uh, talk about this idea of the myth of Judeo-Bolshevism messed with this general fear of Asiatic barbarism coming, emanating from Russia. Right. I mean, again, this is something that you can see perhaps most clearly um, in Nazi ideology, but it's not there only. Um, so I'll just give you a few examples. In you know, it, it was very much a kind of standard story in, in Nazi thinking about the Soviet Union and what the Soviet enemy actually was, that the Soviet Union was a kind of top tier or top elite of Jewish commissars who had at their command this vast millions of Asiatic subhuman barbarians who made up the rank and file of the Red Army, who were themselves not Jews, but who were nonetheless a threat to European civilization, and that these Jewish commissars were going to lead in this horde of, of barbarians into Europe if, 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 if Germany did not win the war. This is, idea is, is, is absolutely fundamental to, for example, all the propaganda that Joseph Goebbels put out during the war. But you can see it you know, even earlier. There are a number of posters from the years of the Russian Civil War and the Polish-Soviet War that feature some, you know, some version of um, a large, red, naked Leon Trotsky, um, you know, perched over a hovering over or something looming over the, you know, this kind of, you know, destroyed landscape. And then if you look at, at, at it more closely, you see that there are, you know, these soldiers who are meant to be Red Army soldiers, and they're often depicted with, um, you know, Asiatic features. They're not those 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 soldiers who are kind of doing all of the dirty work in the poster are not drawn with very stereotypical anti-Semitic caricatures, you know, the nose and so forth. They're 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 drawn in ways that are to suggest they're somehow mongoloid or something like this. Um, and so this is a very this this is a very common idea that 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 Jews are somehow going to be the kind of conspiratorial ringleaders of a of a of a wider you know, flood of anti-European, non-European, uh, uncivilized elements that are going to destroy um, Europe as a whole. And this actually, if I could just digress for a moment, um, is I think, you know, one of the elements that you can kind of see coming back in anti-Semitic um, uh, language today. I mean, the figures have changed. Uh, it's no longer Trotsky. It's now George Soros, who's obviously not a communist, quite the opposite. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's often said about Soros is that he and his, you know, cosmopolitan, liberal, anti-nationalist NGO network, and we know what all of those adjectives mean, um, you know, are somehow inspiring, uh, urging, compelling, helping caravans of migrants from the East or the South or somewhere outside of Europe or outside of the West to come in and, and, and flood and, and, and replace Western or European culture. So the idea that there is a kind of Jewish leadership element to a larger threat to civilization is a very, very long-standing one. It's one that can morph very easily and that has morphed, I think, uh, most recently um, to fit all of these sort of larger fears about the replacement of, of European or white culture with something from outside of the West. Hey, dear listeners, I just wanted to say thanks to everybody who listens to the SRB podcast and the support that many of you have given to the show. This podcast wouldn't exist if listeners didn't show the love, especially by chipping in money every month. But I also wanted to make an appeal to the silent majority out there who listen on a regular basis and do little in return for the pleasure. So I want all of you to think about what this podcast means to you. If it's worth $5 or $10 a month, then show me the money. Hell, if it's only worth $1 a month, then that's fine too. There are things I want to do in the coming year to diversify the format of the podcast. I want to do some historical documentaries. I want to provide more transcripts of interviews. And I want to do some more live events. All of this, unfortunately, takes money. So become a patron at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog. Go to iTunes and write a review. Tell your friends or just drop me a line to express your appreciation or offer some in-kind services. So I hope you guys all enjoy the show, and I hope you keep supporting it. And for those of you who aren't supporting it, I hope you start to. I want to thank everybody for listening and for your support. I'm done for now. Now on with the show. So how did Jewish communities in, in Central and Eastern Europe respond to this myth? You know, it's really interesting. I mean, they responded in, in many ways um, uh, 
you, you know uh, the the way that a, a large a lot of historians have responded. I mean, I looked most carefully at um, liberal Jewish communities um, in Germany and Hungary and Britain and elsewhere in the in the 1920s. It's sort of the most sustained um, uh, uh, analysis that I have in the book. I mean, the book is 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 about the anti-Semitism, not about the Jewish response, but. Um, you know, they, they, they made a number of very good, very logical, very well-reasoned and well-supported points that, you know, um, that, that, the, that the Jews who were communists were only a small number of Jews. They did not represent the Jewish community as a whole, that there were Jews who um, supported other kinds of political projects in far greater numbers. Um, they also made the argument that the Jews who joined the Communist Party were not, it was, it was difficult to know how to call them Jews since they had broken with Judaism in many ways in their personal lives. Um, and that therefore, because of all of these facts, you know, the, the myth that Jews as a collective were somehow to blame for, Judeo, for, for Bolshevism was, was an absolute and utter, you know, nonsense. And that um, they wanted to, you know, in a sense, disprove it using those kinds of 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 of, of, of means and, and arguments. And and this is something that you know many historians have done as well. There are lots and lots of books explaining, you know, how many Jews were communists, how many more were not, to sort of place the Jews who who opted for some kind of Marxist politics in a in a broader context that sets them against those Jews in, let's say, Eastern Europe who chose Zionism. Uh, or, or, or liberalism, um, or who were apolitical. Um, and so there, there's this sort of idea that, you know, irrationality can be met with rational argument, and that, you know, in time the rational argument will drown out the irrationality. And so the, the thing that I was struck by, you know, is, is that, you know, despite the fact that all of the arguments they were making were absolutely true, it, you know, it never actually dispelled the power of the conspiratorial imagination. Um, and so that's, you know, one of the main reasons why I'm, the book is not about why did some Jews become communists, which is a very interesting question. And, and for some people who pick up the book and don't find it there and they're disappointed, I, I understand why, you know, why for, for some people that's the most interesting question. Um, but if for me, the persistence across time and across locations of this conspiratorial myth, despite numerous attempts to make, you know, very well-founded, very well-grounded arguments about how to think about numbers, how to think about what it means to be overrepresented, and how to place, you know, Jews and communism in a larger context of Jewish politics. None of those arguments actually made it all go away. And so yeah. I, I wanted to sort of think about the power, the enduring power of that. You know, in, in the, this question of the power of it, um, do you also, and, and this is more on the conspiracy side of it, that, you know, in the early 20th century, late 19th century, 20 into the 20th century, it's an incredibly destabilizing time. Do you think that the, the latching on to a conspiratorial view of society is of, of modern times, right? Of trying to come to grips with modern times is also a factor that feeds into the persistence of this myth? Yeah, I do. Um, and, and, and so one of the things that I tried to do in the book is to take that insight, which, which you're quite right about, and, and to try to be a little bit more precise about it. Say what, ac what aspects of you know, people's discomfort or anxiety um, does the Jewish Bolshevik myth, as opposed to anti-Semitism more generally, speak to? Um, and you know, I, so I found a number of things. You see um, in, in, um, uh, uh, in the aftermath of, of World War One, you see a number of places where the, the you know Jews and, and communism are very much tied up with anxiety about sovereignty and about borders and border security and 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 whether you know this particular state can defend its borders. It's a huge issue in across um, Eastern Europe as all of the empires are collapsing and the sort of political order is emerging out of that. Um, you see it also at that same time in, in, in a fear of Jewish migration, that Jews from Eastern Europe um, are going to be bringing with them a kind of political, ideological, you know, bacteria or infection that's going to spread in the societies where they end up. Um, and then, you know, in, 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 in later periods, you can find it associated with sort of... Um, uh, 
you know, these sort of broader debates about what is European or Western or Christian civilization actually, and thinking about Jews and Bolshevism often becomes a very good way for people to define what they mean by those terms, Christian civilization or European civilization. So I was looking at, at, the, at, at the ways in which specific anxieties could be reflected or, or amplified through this particular myth. But I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's, the, it's the anxieties about a world that's very much in flux um, that, 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 that is, is driving this. And I think that's absolutely what you're seeing today, even as, you know, things have transformed beyond the sort of specific frame of the book that I wrote. Now let's go back to a bit, uh, about more specifically about the Nazi refashioning of Judeo-Bolshevism, because, you, you know, you spend a lot of time on it and it, it also seems to be in terms of the fate of Jewish people in the 20th century, it also seems to be the most consequential on the ideological front. So go into a bit, how does the Judeo-Bolshevik myth find its way into Nazi ideology and how was it articulated? Well, I mean, I think it finds its way very early on into Nazi ideology. I, I write at the beginning of the, you know, one chapter that um, Judeo-Bolshevism made Hitler. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that um, you know, Hitler had his own anti-Semitic views, you know, well before the Russian Revolution. But the general anxiety about Jews and communists, especially in Munich, where he was located, allowed him to uh, come to some kind of political prominence very early on. He sort of was able to use that issue and those general anxieties to, you know, create a, a party and a movement that then went on. So it was from the very first um, a kind of a central element, not the only element, but a central element of. Nazi thinking about the world and Nazi thinking about Jews. Um, in those in that early period, I, I I don't know that it has very much in it that distinguishes it from the the ways in which you can see the the the, the that that association and that stereotype working in other places. So I don't know that in its in its origins there's anything particularly German or Nazi about it. Um, but what does become you know crucial for thinking about the 1940s is that it gets grafted onto. Um, Nazi thinking about uh, hegemony in Europe and about creating an empire, which is what distinguishes it from a place like, you know, Hungary or Romania that never had this sort of, uh, you know, ambition to somehow control all of Europe. Um, and so, you know, when when Hitler is making a bid, you know, in the 1930s to sort of be the kind of leading anti-communist power, as a, you know, which he announces in, in, in various addresses in the Nuremberg Party rallies in 1935 and 1936, 1937 during the Spanish Civil War. Um, the idea of Judeo-Bolshevism is, is presented as a threat that Nazi Germany can help the rest of Europe defend itself against. And so, you know, when, when then in 1941 Nazi Germany goes to war against the Soviet Union, you know, right-wing nationalists who had been using this language on their own to address very specific concerns of their own where they lived had to sort of figure out how to you know link their own vision of Jews and Bolshevism to Nazi ideology whether they were going to be you know completely on the same page whether this was there was going to be any sort of slippage between the two um, and it and there's this kind of linkage in which they all get kind of caught up in this in this Nazi drive to to, to dominate the continent so that's that's how I that's how I see the transformation. It's kind of the Europeanization of it through, yeah. a kind of, and it also at bringing together all these vectors and filtering it through in a way through the Nazi revision of it. Um, now after it, and this is a really fascinating. The, the second part of your book is the fate of Judeo Bolshevism after World War II, because on the one hand you have you know the discrediting of Nazism. Uh, you have the Holocaust, and then, of course, you have, uh, because of the Cold War, uh, uh, you know, an increase of anti-communism. So, and then you have this interesting discursive shift in, in, in that uh, anti-communism is framed as a way to, it's stripped of its Jewishness to some extent, and then it's reconfigured, uh, anti-communism is reconfigured as a way to defend Judeo-Christian civilization. So, what is this? Explain this shift from Judeo-Bolshevism to Judeo-Christian civilization in in post-war anti-communism. Yeah, I mean, this this uh, you know, I'm glad that you brought it up because it was it was something that I was finding as I was reading about, and I, I spent a lot of time trying to trying to think whether or not it, it it belonged in the book or not, and I decided it did because it was so closely related to 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 this notion of 
Judeo-Bolshevism. I mean, it's it's an idea that I think comes most prominently from the United States um, and from, uh, you know, thinking in the 1930s about um, uh, uh, opposing racism in a way that, you know, could bring Catholics and Jews and Protestants together in a kind of, um, you know, alliance against destructive secular forces that might, you know, undermine uh, liberal democracy and those secular forces were seen as being different kinds of totalitarianism, whether Nazism or 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 or, or communism. Um, and um, in the aftermath of 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 World War II, you know, the notion of Judeo-Christian civilization was, uh, you know, became the new way to talk about defending Europe against communism and. Um, there's this very interesting migration of the adjective or the prefix Judeo because it's no longer Judeo-Bolshevism, you know, it's, it's, it's Judeo-Christian civilization that it, is, it, is inclu- it can be inclusive of Jews. And that's certainly something that, you know, at the height of the, uh, you know, McCarthyism that you see, um, you know, Jewish organizations, many Jews in the United States, you know, you know quite, quite happily endorsing as a way of saying that they're not associated with, you know, the communists or the reds, that they are in fact, you know, good liberal democratic Americans just like everyone else. You can see that happening within American politics. But in um, in Europe, where, where Nazi Germany had just been so recently defeated, there's this really interesting way in which Judeo-Christian civilization and Christian civilization kind of, you know, exist in this kind of uneasy relationship side by side. And that, that slippage allows... Um, many uh, former Nazis to 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 say that they are in fact you know not Nazis but good anti-communists and they want to defend civilization and they uh, alongside the United States against the communist threat and and it, it becomes this very interesting way in which um, former right-wing nationalists can be integrated into the West reintegrated into the West. Um, after the destruction of the of, of 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 Nazism and of Nazi Germany, so you know, it's on the one hand, it's it's a very um, it's 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 an inclusive idea, and so from the point of view of you know what does it mean for Jewish communities, it's absolutely a, a transformative notion. On the other hand, there's this association with anti-communism allows you know people who had not that long ago been committed to something very different to sort of re re put on different clothes, recast themselves, change their colors, however you want to put it. So, so what would you say happens to the anti-Semitic side that was so wedded to anti-communism before the war? Where does that go in the post-war period? Well, I, I think it goes in, in in two ways, and I think the one that I explore most clearly, um, you, you know, is in Eastern Europe, where you find communist regimes coming to power. Um, you know, many of them with prominent Jewish figures at, you know, in, 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 in visible places that allow this sort of, you know, language to crystallize around them. And they are, um, you know, they're trying to, to gain legitimacy in societies where these ideas have been deeply ingrained for decades before they, 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 they tried after 1945 to create a new regime. And so from the very beginning, communist regimes in Poland and Hungary and Romania are having to confront this idea because it's so deeply ingrained in, in the societies in which in right. which they are trying to exercise power. Um, and and it, it had been an, 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 uh, a key feature of, for example, in Hungary of, of the propaganda right up until the very end of the war, you know, as the, as the Red Army was approaching, Hungarian fascist radio was putting out all of these stories about what would happen when the Red Army arrived and the Jewish commissars who were leading them would take revenge. And the whole idea of Jewish revenge was very much sort of baked into people's understanding of what happened when the Soviet army finally actually did arrive. So, so you know, there's this way in which it's, it's kind of built into or, or becomes a, a key element in um, the, the efforts of communist parties in Eastern Europe to, 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 to build regimes and to try to win legitimacy. Um, I think, you know, in, 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 in Western Europe, and this is um, something that, you know, I point to in that chapter on Judeo-Christian civilization, but certainly could, could um, stand a, a lot more research than, than I gave it, is that, you know, beneath this... Um, general veneer of a transformed Judeo-Christian civilization, 
um, a lot of these old ideas still persist in various ways. Um, yeah. You can find this, for example, in the way that many uh, West Germans still think about the Red Army and about the Soviet Union. And if 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 um, if they can't say Judeo Bolshevism out loud because that's now taboo, they certainly can say Asiatic Bolshevism. And yeah. those you know, and those two ideas have been very very <clears throat> wedded together in um, in. Uh, um, uh, in Nazi ideology, certainly. So that's one way. And I think, you know, more generally, you know, what we're seeing, I think, today in in Europe, in, in the sort of revival of anti-Semitism in so many places by right-wing nationalists, is that, you know, these ideas persisted perhaps in very, very marginal subcultures. But yeah. there were, there were certainly thinkers and writers who, you know, tried to sort of who who kept these ideas alive and 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 so they are they are sort of present in the kind of um, you know general uh, you know wreckage of the you know the twentieth century for people to sort of pick up and 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 wield together again. Right, it's kind of like the return of the repressed in some respects. In a way, or just you know like that that just because you know that you know I think American occupation uh, you know and, and the sort of the the Atlantic. You know the creation of the Atlantic, you know, regime after nineteen forty-five pushed a lot of these ideas, you know, beneath the surface and, and to the margins, um, where they, you know, they they couldn't be expressed. If they were expressed, it had real political consequences. You know, there's there there are, you know a number of cases of you know members in in West Germany of the CDU who make some kind of our you know some sort of statement about Jews and communism, and that 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 will then have career consequences for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so so there's a kind of you know consensus that we don't we don't we don't believe that anymore. But you know the the ideas are still there for those to find them. Yeah. Um, and I think that's certainly what we're seeing now, and that's why I think in a certain way it's it's not that the idea of Judeo Bolshevism has come back, but so many of the um, anxieties that it reflected are 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 present again. And so you see a kind of you know sort of strange kind of echoes um, yeah. today of the kind of th- things that I describe in the book um, about the 20th century. I mean, the trope, the characters have changed, but the tropes themselves are pretty consistent. You know, Precisely. We were t- talking about Soros, and, and I mean, it's a perfect example of the revival of this basic idea that, you know, a Jewish figure through money organizations is pulling the strings of and sowing conflict in, you know, a variety of different national contexts. Um, so, um, so how does Jewish Judeo-Bolshevism factor into the memory of both the of the Holocaust and communism in you know since 1990, 1989? Right. I mean, I think you know there is um, there is a, a you know an ongoing debate, and and it's 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 a very serious one, and 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 you know serious historians are engaged with it in it about how to remember. The Holocaust and communism as part of a you know the experience, particularly in Eastern Europe of the 20th century. You know what what are the relationship of those two things to each other? How should we imagine the relationship? Um, and so you know within that debate, there's also been um, a kind of question about um, how much weight should be given to the particular question of of, of Holocaust memory. Um, in you know you know from you know, at least let's say the 1980s on, and exactly how you want to date it is, 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 I think, still an open question. You know, there's this kind of general sense that remembering the Holocaust, or commemorating it, is a kind of symbol for a broader set of liberal democratic practices, that to, to remember the Holocaust is to be in some way committed to a certain set of ideas that involve, you know, toleration, human rights, uh, civic democracy, etc., um, and that, therefore, one of the things that um, was really attached to kind of, you know, European expansion and the sort of post-communist transition in Eastern Europe was that one of the things that societies could do to signal their readiness, if you will, and I'm using my air quotes, um, you know, their readiness to join um, to join uh, Europe was to uh, engage in a kind of robust and sincere memory of the Holocaust. Um and, you know, there are a number of people across Eastern Europe, especially, you know, nationalists, nationalist historians, nationalist politicians who feel that, 
this is a kind of political correctness, that's how they would describe it, um, that, that it leaves no room for um, the suffering that, you know, we or our people experienced in the 20th century at the hands of the, commun at the, hands of the of communist regimes, it's just, or, or, or of Nazi occupiers. Um, it's, it's, it's just about the, 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 the suffering that Jews, i.e. they, experienced. Um, and um, that, you know, in the general pushback, um, you can find a number of, you know, right-wing historians making comparisons or drawing uh, connections or saying that, well, there were, you know, there were Jewish victims, but there were also in, under communist and Jewish perpetrators, and perhaps those two things should offset each other in some way. Um, and, you know, I see it uh, as being not just about, you know, empirical questions. It, it is, I think, in many, many cases, a kind of dog whistle, you know, to say we need more, we need more, you know, focus on the relationship of Jews and communism. This is a kind of dog whistle for pushing back against the kind of liberal political values that Holocaust memory has come to represent. That was Paul Hambrink, an associate professor of history at Rutgers University, specializing in modern East Central Europe, with a particular focus on Hungary. He's the author of A Spectre Haunting Europe, The Myth of Judeo-Bolshevism, published by Harvard University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Rush Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high well-borns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org. Until next time, bye! Мой дельта план, мой дельта план.